<laughs> and let's read, uh, let's read a passage of Scripture from John chapter 6. You didn't know you were at a Catholic church, did you? Yeah. <laughs> Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people set down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and then they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of your word and the truth of your word. I pray that you would speak to your people today and that, that they would hear you and that those who do not know you today would be uh, attracted to you and desire to know you and that those who, who do know you would be attracted to you and desire to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of two miracles that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. The other one is the miracle of the resurrection. So this is pretty, this is pretty heady company. This is pretty heavy duty stuff here. And uh, all four Gospels uh, talk about the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9. And they're all referring to the same event uh, because, well, they all share a lot of the same details. They all talk about there just being... Uh, just being, about there being about 5,000 men who were present. So we assume that there were uh, quite a few women and children as well, since usually there are more women and children in church than there are men anyway. Uh, so there were a lot of people there. Um, they all have the same location. Luke actually uh, names Bethsaida as the place, but that would be on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, Mark also mentions, along with John, this, this detail about it requiring over a half a year's wages 
to buy food so that, uh, so that these people could eat if you wanted to go that way. They all talk about the 12 baskets full being uh, gathered up after, after the miracle was done. They all mention the five loaves and the two fishes. And so they're all talking about the same event. And it's obviously a pretty important event because, like I say, aside from the resurrection, it's the only miracle that all, that all four Gospels record. As usual, John gives us a little more detail than some of the others. Uh, the others report uh, uh, the disciples bringing up the issue of how to feed the people. John says, no, actually Jesus was the one who first uh, began to start the conversation and he started it with Thomas. And John tells us these, I'm sorry, started with, with Philip. And uh, so John tells these, uh, uh, these people's names uh, because he is giving the detail. And, and he asked Philip, Jesus asked Philip, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed all these people? And the scripture goes on to tell us that he asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. God is interested in our ideas, but not because he's stumped. <laughs> not because you, you, you will never hear God saying, oh, didn't see that coming. I mean, he knows... He knows what's coming, and he knows what to do about it, and he knows what the plan is that he has. He wants to hear from us because it reveals who we are, and perhaps, now he already knows who we are, but perhaps just there's an off chance that we might actually listen to what we say back and get some idea of who we are ourselves. Over in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah uh, flees to Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. And those of you who are familiar with the story know that he had just called fire down on Mount Carmel and he had just killed the 600 prophets of Baal and he had uh, broken the three-year drought with his prayers. And <clears throat> Yes, and the next day Jezebel had threatened to kill him and he, he ran away. He killed 600 prophets as long as they're men. But, you know, let one woman get after him. And he's, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And he's out of here. And he goes, he goes running off to, the, to Horeb, to the mountain of the Lord, which is a long way, a 40-day journey that, it, that he took. And, uh, and when he gets there, God asks him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? He knew what Elijah was doing there. And this is the instance where Elijah hears the still small voice of the Lord. And when he finally hears the still small voice, it says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah tells him, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord. God Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and they've put your prophets to death with a sword. And I'm the only one that's left. And now they're trying to kill me. And that's why I'm here. And God goes, mm-hmm. Okay. I've got a plan. I mean, I, I hear you whining. I have a plan. Go back the way you came. Go through the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazael to be king over, 
over Aram and anoint Jehu son of Nimshi to be king over Israel and anoint uh, Elisha the son of Shaphat from Abel Mahola to be uh, prophet in your place. And Jehu will put to death those who escape from, from, uh, from Hazael and Elisha will put to death those who escape from Jehu. Pretty detailed plan. Oh, and by the way, I still got 7,000 people who don't worship Baal yet. You're not as special as you think you are. God had a plan. Perhaps the most important time God asked man a question was, uh, was the first time over in Genesis chapter 3. Adam, where are you? And it's still a question that he's asking people today, but he, but he asked that question and God knew where Adam was. You ever had a little kid try to hide from you? You ever had a cat try to hide from you? Yeah. They'll put their head under the bed and they think they're hidden, you know, because they can't be seen. Uh, you know, and, and kids, little kids aren't a whole lot better at hiding. But God knew where Adam was, just like he knew why Elijah was at Mount Horeb. And Adam said, well, I'm over here. I'm hiding because I'm naked. And God said, well, who told you you were naked? I haven't created mirrors yet. <laughs> Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And Adam brought up the age-old defense of blaming other people and blaming God. That woman... You know, God, most of your ideas are pretty good. But that woman that you created, you, you know, the one that you brought in here, and, you know, she's kind of hot, and, and I, you know, well, she gave me from that tree, and I, of course I ate from it. Of course. You had no choice, did you? Yeah. You did it. God. You put her here. The Scripture says that a man's own decisions ruins his way, but his heart rails against God. Now, we, do, we do that. We, we blame God. Blame, blame the people that are around us. God had a plan. So, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to put enmity between the seed of that woman and this serpent. And the serpent will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush the serpent's head. God had a plan. And so when Jesus talked to Philip here, he already had a plan, even though he asked him a question. Now, here's the thing. God always has a plan. So beware of those who teach you to come up with your own plan. Oh, you're going to like this. <laughs> this past Wednesday in, uh, in our class, Scott Asher was uh, uh, teaching about context and he brought up a, a famous Bible teacher, which he didn't name, and I, and I won't, but who basically teaches people to imagine what it is that you really want to be. And imagine, you know, how, how you can be the best that you can be. And go to, go to bed imagining it and get up imagining it and think about it during the day and plant it in your heart and you will become that. And, you know, and this guy's followed by millions of people and, uh, you know, some of you probably own some of his books and stuff like that. And if he came to town, there'd be thousands who go to him, but that's not godly and it's not right. 
That, that is the way of Cain that Jude warns against over in Jude chapter 1. What is the way of Cain? Uh, see, Cain killed his brother. But that wasn't really the way of Cain because Cain didn't go about killing everybody he saw. Why did he kill his brother? He killed his brother because he was jealous. Well, why was he jealous? He was jealous because his brother offered a sacrifice that was accepted and Cain offered a sacrifice that wasn't accepted. Why wasn't his sacrifice accepted? Now we're getting down to the way of Cain. It was because Cain had a better idea than God did. God said, go kill something. In fact, not just anything. I, I, want, I, want, I want a lamb. You know, it, it'd be okay if God said, go kill a spider, right? I mean, you know, or go kill something ugly. You know, but a cuddly little cute lamb. Go kill something. Go kill cuddly little cute lamb. And let's have some blood here. And some fire. We had fish a couple nights ago, and our house still smells like fish. <laughs> I mean, when you burn meat, it just, yeah, it hangs around. Doesn't really smell good. And Cain's going, you know what? I think I can do this better. I'll bring him something that looks good. I'll bring him something that, that smells good. I'll bring him something that I'll bring him something that still has all the nutrients in it and is and is and is good to eat. God's a juicer, right? Well, here all the, all these fresh vegetables and and fruits and everything, here they are. God looks good, doesn't it? God goes, no. See, the way of Cain is God's got a plan, but I've got a plan too. So I'm not telling you to not try to be good. I'm just telling you, any of you ever heard the verse, flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit? Has anybody memorized it by, by now? Yeah, because we've, we've mentioned it frequently. See, God has a plan, and not only that, God's plan is better than yours. It's always better than yours. And God's plan isn't to make you into the best you you can possibly be. That's not his plan. That's not his way for your life. God's plan is revealed over in Romans chapter 8 verse 29, which comes right after verse 28 for you math majors. Romans 8.28 is one that a lot of you are probably familiar with. In everything, God is at work for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And why is he at work? Because for those God he knew, foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. To be the firstborn so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. I don't see it saying that God's plan for you is to, is, is to make Jim into the greatest Jim that is on the earth. Or to make Valerie into the greatest Valerie there is. No, his plan for Jim and his plan for Valerie are the same thing. He wants to make them look like Jesus Christ. That's, that is what his plan is. And... Do you really think that the process of being conformed to Christ is painless and does not involve sacrifice? I mean, do you seriously think that the way to be like Jesus is to get everything you want? 
and have it easy. Uh, look, this is why I don't write books. Nobody would buy them. <laughs> and, and I'm also too lazy. But <laughs> I mean, and if, and, if you, and if you think that, then maybe you should consider Hebrews 2.10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, everybody's supposed to suffer all the time and be poor and blah, 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 and we're, that we're not overcomers. I mean, you know, we are. Everybody's path is different. It's different. Now, the way to salvation is the same for everybody, but the path to being conformed to Jesus Christ is different because there are things in my life that God needs to get rid of that aren't in your life. And there are things in your life that he needs to get rid of that aren't in my life. So it's pretty easy for me on that, when it's your problem. But you can't look at, at, at somebody else and go, Oh, well, you know, you, you're just, you, you, you obviously aren't an overcomer because you're having a hard time. Well, you know, maybe, maybe there's just a little, maybe there's some chopping going on there. Maybe there's some removal going on there. I've never talked to a, a table or to a chair, but I don't imagine that they enjoy sanding. I would think that's one of their least favorite things. And sometimes... Some of us are not enough like Christ that we require some sanding. And that's just, that's just the way that it is. And we may think that while he's working to conform us to Christ, we can help him by becoming what we think is good. And we would be wrong in thinking that. Have you ever had someone who has... No knowledge, no talent, no aptitude, and no clue help you do a job. The only thing worse is having somebody who has no knowledge, no talent, no aptitude, no skill, and no clue help you do a job who thinks they know how to do it better than you. That's what we are. When we're telling God how to make me look like Jesus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, every, every sermon I preach, I think, this is the greatest one ever. <laughs> a verse that has become a very popular verse for a lot of people, and rightly so. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you and plans to give you hope in a future. Great verse. Does anybody know who he's saying this to and what's happening when he says it to him? He's saying it to Israel. You know where they are. They're in the Bible. That's right. <laughs> Saying it to Israel, they're in Babylon. They're in Babylon. And the reason why he's saying it is because a lot of prophets have come along and told them that Babylon's going to fall. It's imminent. We're, go we're all going back to Jerusalem. 
Praise God. Victory is ours. It's just right around. Just pack your bags, boys. We're getting out of here. We're going home. You know? And God's going, no, you ain't. Chill. Rest where you are. Build houses and live in them. Work for the good and the prosperity of the place where you are. You're going to be there for about 70 years. Then I'll send you back, but don't worry about it. I know the plans I've got for you. I've got plans to prosper you, not harm you. I've got plans to, to give you a, a hope and, 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 and a future. What are your plans? They're getting in my way. I love the scripture. So, how was Jesus testing Philip? Sometimes God will uh, engage us in conversation to teach us. And in fact, virtually always, but you know, once again, we have to listen. Philip basically had three ways to answer Jesus' question, three options. And one of the options was, I don't know. And that's basically what he said. I mean, Jesus said, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip goes, uh, it would take like a half a year's wages to buy enough for each one to have a bite. That sounds like I don't know to me. Okay? And that's not necessarily a bad answer. In fact, most of the time, that's, that's a really good answer to give to God. Uh, because uh, we don't know quite frankly. Um, the book of Job, I, when I first came to the Lord and started reading through the Bible uh, on a yearly basis, I would dread coming up to Job. I'd go, oh, Job, oh my goodness, you, know, you got all this, oh yeah. Uh, but the last couple of decades, I just, I love it. I, I love Job. The chapters are short, nice little verses and and you just kind of fly through it, but there's some great stuff there. And, you know, and I actually begin to learn some things out of it. And Job and his comforters are, are, uh, are having these conversations. And, and Job's comforters have such, just seem to be saying such wise and wonderful and deep things. And maybe they are, but they're really stinky comforters. That, that, their job isn't to say wise and wonderful things. Their job is to comfort, and, they, and they're miserable at it. Uh, but one of the things toward the end of the book, God shows up and he begins to ask questions. And of course, nobody can answer any of the questions that he's asking. And Job says a passage that has just really become precious to me. He says, you ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know, Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It is absolutely proper to look at God and go, I don't know. I don't know. I was having, uh, a, well, I was supposed to play racquetball with this guy who's in, a, in a, uh, a really strong ministry. We play racquetball fairly often, but uh, one of us forgot to call and reserve the court this time, him. And, uh, you know, someone else showed up who actually had reserved at the court. So we spent an hour walking, uh, you know, and talking. And, uh, <clears throat> and I, you know, and he, he just came up out of nowhere kind of going, you know, the, the, the more I serve the Lord and the longer I walk in the Lord, the more I realize 
I, I really don't know anything. I said, you're preaching my sermon, brother. So he could have he said, I don't know, and he did say, I don't know. But he could also have said, I'll do it, which is the worst thing he could possibly say. Who's going to feed all these people? Hey, Jesus, you just rest right over there. Because I know it's been, I know it's been tired. I know you came here to rest, and all these people showed up. You rest, we'll take care of it. You, I, I, you know, God isn't a, isn't a man that he should lie, and he's not a man that he should get weirded out either. But if I, if I, if I were God, every time I'd hear somebody say, I'll do it, I would kind of go, ooh, Really? This is, going, this is not going to be good. This is going to be bad. And this likely appeals to our cultural instincts to give this answer. Absolutely. I'll move that mountain. Yes, sir. But it's the worst possible answer. Repeat after me. And you know, I don't do this often, right? So this is significant. Repeat after me. The Lord does not... Help those who help themselves. Now turn to a neighbor and sincerely tell them, the Lord does not help those who help themselves. The Lord helps those who trust in him, who trust in his unfailing love. That's where his, that's where his strength comes in. Those who help themselves, that's how, that's how Abraham ended up with Ishmael before God's time for Isaac. That's how Israel ended up with Saul as king before God's time for, for, for David. That's how, that's how Simon Peter under rebuke cutting Malchus's ear off before God's time to destroy his enemies. These people were helping themselves. Hey, Peter, you know, yeah, I'm going to destroy my enemies, but would you let me have a chance to save them first? Maybe that's what we're in the business of doing right now. And you know, I, I, I love the fact that John actually mentions Malchus's name. He's the guy whose ear Peter uh, cut off because none of the other gospels mention it. But, but, uh, but John does, and I think he mentions it because I think Malchus got saved. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, you know, thinking here. But I'm thinking that he put it in uh, so that, because the last, uh, every now and then, you know, John takes a little jab at Peter. And it, it's kind of it's fun when he does. And I think he's kind of going, you know, all, all, hey, brothers and sisters, you know, you know Brother Malchus. He's a great teacher. And, and he's a great man of God. Peter almost killed him. Almost cut his ear off. Well, he did cut his ear off. Tried to cut his head off. That's what he tried to do. But he's a bad swordsman. And, and uh... <laughs> so he could say, I don't know, he, which he did say. He could say, I'll do it, which is the worst thing you can say and the best thing that he could say. Speak, Lord. Your servant's listening. What do you want? What, what do you want? You alone know. Over in chapter 2, I think Mary had it nailed perfectly when Jesus performed his first miracle. She turned to the servants and she said, do whatever he tells you. Whatever he tells you. That's, that is the right answer. So what should we do? Whatever God tells you. As usual, John gives us a little more detail. And let me fly along here. He's the one who tells us that the loaves and the fishes belong to a boy. 
to a little boy. The other disciples kind of say, well, the disciples had five loaves and two fishes, and the disciples found five loaves and two John's the only one that tells us they stole it from a kid. <laughs> Actually, they didn't steal it. They just neglect the fact that mentioning that it wasn't them who brought it. Imagine what a killing this boy could have made with this food with the shortage that was going on at that point in time. I mean, all the people who kind of go, well, I don't want to have to walk all the way to, you know, whatever to get some food. And this guy's got five loaves and two fishes. I'll, I'm in the auction. You know, imagine what he, could have, what he could have gotten for it. But he gave it to Jesus. Not a bad choice. And so now we learn the truer high math, God math, to infinity and beyond. Yeah. Luke 6, 38, given it will be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now that's actually talking specifically about forgiveness and, and judgment, not judging. But it applies across the board. And when I say that it applies to specifically forgiveness, um, that's probably more important than money. We get right down to it. I mean, they're probably the strongest disease in the body of Christ in the world is unforgiveness today. And once again, I mean, I'm obviously not God, but I'm created in his image, and so are you, and I think all of us have a tendency to feel like, you know, if you're dealing with somebody who won't cut anybody slack, and then it comes around and they want some slack, mm, there's, there's this tendency to sort of go, really? I think you need to taste some of the medicine you've been handing out, you know. But, you, but if you've got somebody who's gracious and merciful and, 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 and willing to uh, extend that grace to others, and when it comes to them, you know, God says, well, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. But like I say, this, this applies, this, this, this giving business applies all, all across. And here's the God math. It's not the more you give, the more you get. That's not it. It's the more you give, the more there is. That's what it is. That, that's what's crazy about it. The widow of Zarephath gave a small loaf of bread and got fed for three years by it. But she, didn't, she wasn't the only one who got fed. Her son got fed and the prophet got fed. Three people got fed for three years because she gave a small loaf of bread that wasn't really going to be much of a meal for one, one day. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, bought a small bottle of perfume and she poured it out on Jesus' feet. And 2,000 years later, uh, you know, we're just going, wow, what, what an event. I mean, I, Barbie's going to preach when we get to that part and, and the women are just going to cry and Alan Smith's going to cry and, and it, it's just going to be, it's just going to be a glorious day to be here when that happens. Mary could have kept that perfume and she could have put it on and for months 
People would be going, ooh, you smell good. But she poured it out on Jesus. And for millenniums, people are going, oh, you woman, you smell good. Whenever we give to Jesus, the more there is. Hannah gave her son Samuel to the Lord to serve at the, at, at, the, at the tabernacle of the Lord. She was barren. She wasn't able to have children. She gave her son to the Lord. He gave her three more sons and, and, and two daughters. Five kids for one. Not a bad swap, depending on how those five behaved. <laughs> yeah. And this little boy gave a small meal, and over 5,000 people ate and were satisfied. And 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him. And they took up 12 baskets. There was more left over than they started with. That's God math. You know, now, I'm not saying that if you're, if you're devil stupid, you can count on God math. You know, if you, if you, if you, if you take all your money and you go blow it on video games, you might not have money to pay the rent, okay? But if you put God first, no, if you, if you take it and you blow it off, you won't have money to pay the rent. Let me put it that way. There's no maybe to it. But if you put God first, you never go wrong that way. And it's not just, it's not just, about, it's not just about money. Do not be afraid to, ever afraid to give God of your resources, time, talent, finances, even loved ones. When we, uh, when Margaret and I went to Zimbabwe back in the mid eighties, that had to be hard on my parents because they were, I say, doing doing some quick math here. My dad was well into his sixties at the time and uh, mom wasn't too far behind. I was an only child. So obviously Margaret was an only daughter-in-law. Uh, our two kids were the only grandkids. And so, hey, we're moving 10,000 miles away. Now, you know, it wasn't like they had a lot of choice, but they were gracious about it. They were gracious. They helped us. They let us go. And if, they had, if, that, hadn't ha- if that course had not happened in our lives, I don't think we would have ended up in, in Smyrna. We were, we were headed in some other directions. We, we would have... I, I think I'd be in the ministry, but it would probably be somewhere else. Uh, they let us go, and then, and what ended up happening, because it was totally unforeseen, we thought we might spend the rest of our lives there, what ended up happening was the last 20 years of my dad's life, we were closer to him than, 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 we'd ever, than I'd ever been before. In fact, it was 20 years. He died at 92, and we, he was 72 when we came back. Closer. Jesus said... Over in uh, Matthew 19, 29, when Peter was coming to him and, and talking about all the stuff that we've given up and everything to follow you. And he said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now, the problem is when it comes to that hundred times as much, if you're looking for a check in the mail next week, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about God's time, God's plan, not ours. You'll always end up with more by giving it to God than you can end up with by keeping it. 
for yourself as if you could actually keep anything. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. People jumped to conclusions, but Jesus wasn't interested in their conclusions, and he's not interested in ours, quite frankly. Flesh can only give birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. In fact, later on in this chapter, Jesus says, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. Jesus was their king, whether they acknowledged it or not. Jesus is still waiting for the fulfillment of Psalm 2. See, God doesn't ask us to do anything that he's not doing or that he hasn't already done before us. He's still waiting for the, for the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And the whole psalm actually makes up what the promise to him was. But the essence is, I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll rule them with, a, with an iron rod. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Well, that, that really hasn't happened yet. It, but it's going to happen because it's God's plan. And Jesus understands that. And he's still waiting for it. And by the way, do you know Jesus has a tattoo? I, I, I don't know why I'm just saying this, but I, I thought I'd bring it up. Yeah, he's got, he's got a tattoo. I don't know if he's got it yet. I mean, maybe they're going to, you know, put it on him right before, he, right before he comes back and everything. It's on his thigh. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I don't think it's, a, you know, one of those decal washy-offy things, you know, that after, after a few days is gone. And, you know, and I didn't say that to, to create any stress in anybody's home. Any uh, <laughs> conversations? I just thought it was interesting as I was thinking about the fact that he's waiting for, this, for the plan to be fulfilled for him as well. He's not worried because the Father's plan is perfect, because the Father's plan always comes to pass, and he gave his all. He gave his all. And so as Isaiah says, therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. And so in our relationships, we should have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who went, what do you want me to do? Not my will, but yours be done. You've got the perfect way. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to go, "Mm, I'm God, I'm going to hang on to that but instead took on the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself to death, even death upon a cross. And therefore, God has exalted Jesus to the highest place, given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, And under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No weapon formed against me can prosper. That's right. As long as I am under him. In everything I am an overcomer through him and under him. Not my will, but yours be done. 
There's a freedom there. There's a joy there. There's a promise there. Would you stand with me? <laughs> Would those who are going to pray with people come down front? Uh, I grew up in a church culture where if you weren't poor, you must be a sinner. Uh, and, you know, and some of you may kind of go, what? Yeah, yeah, and that was, that was basically, I mean, you know, rich people got rich because something was wrong. You know, they, and they just didn't have a passion for God. And the church has kind of done a 180 on that. And it's basically kind of now, well, if you're poor, there must be something wrong. You're not an overcomer. You know. All of that's just man's ideas. Everybody's path is different. The important thing is we walk humbly with God. And he conforms us to the image of Christ. And as he does so, you may be at a spot in your life where there's some sanding going on. It's kind of hard. And if you are, it's there's no shame in coming down and going, help. I, I, I need prayer. This is, a, this is a tough time. This is a tough thing that's happening to me. This is, I don't know which way to go at this point in time. I need to hear something from God. You know, the altar's open for any of those things. Uh, and if you're at a place where you're feeling, you know, good and you're feeling overcoming, yeah, well, hallelujah. <laughs> good for you. That, that's part of being a part of the body of Christ. You, you're there to encourage somebody else. Not put them down because they're not where you are. So the altar is open. If you need prayer, you come. If you don't know Christ, we'd love to introduce you to him. You know, it's, it's, it's Justin's absolutely right. You know, life without God. It's unsharpened pencil. No meaning. No point. If you don't need to come... Worship with us for a while because there are those who do. We want to undergird them by creating an atmosphere for the Holy Spirit.
just make one thing clear. If you if you're sick in body and need healing, there is healing. If you need a miracle, there are miracles. What I'm saying is, so I'm not saying those things aren't there and don't ask for them. What I'm saying is, you can trust God. You can trust Him. Every step of the way, every time. Raise your hand. Let me give you a blessing. May the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who sent His Son into the world so that we might have freedom and that we might have life and have it more abundantly. May that, may the joy of those who walk in the freedom of obedience be yours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.